Good morning, everyone. Normally, I would begin my sermon or my message with an introduction that kind of frames the text we're going to read in a present-day common example of our human condition or our human experience, and then what the text intends to tell us about ourselves and tell us about God. That's kind of a standard context that I give. But, well, that little formula isn't going to work with this text today. Um, And some people will read this text and they'll just say, I don't see what the big deal is. Other people will read this text and realize that it's been interpreted and understood in so many different ways uh, over the course of church history that it's impossible to read it and not wrestle with it. And so it's a bit of a roller coaster that we're going to get on today. But by the grace of God, I, I really uh, believe that this text makes complete and total sense, as everything in the Bible does. And I'm just warning you that it may not seem like it when we're halfway through the message, but the plane will land. Okay, At the end, the plane will land. So just don't get discouraged at about the 22-minute mark, thinking this is never going to get resolved, because it will. So our text is, as we continue in James, we have this week and next week on James, uh, is James 5, just 13 to 16, three verses. And we'll read it, and then we'll pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's pray. Father God, um, As is common in the letters of the rest of the New Testament, and here in James is true too, as the writers get to the end, they sort of realize they're running out of paper like we all do and cram in a lot of instruction from your spirit. And James is no different here. And so we have this kind of bomb that lands on us about what do we do with healing. And it's one of the most direct and only places in scripture that it's dealt with this directly. And it's also extremely personal to us. Um, because as Dan just prayed, there are people in our families, there are people in our midst who need healing. And so these texts and the way James frames them can be confusing and shocking and encouraging and at the same time discouraging too. And so help us by your Holy Spirit um, to understand exactly what James is, is saying to us here exactly what your Holy Spirit would have us understand to be our practice as a church and our expectation in prayer. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So verse 13 is fairly light lifting to start with, and it gives us our context. And so verse 13 says that any given Sunday, some Christians are suffering And some Christians are singing. Some are cheerful and joyful. 
Uh, the experience of James in the early church is the same as ours today, literally, right here at Lakeside, right here this morning. People and families came in, and some are suffering, some are experiencing deep sorrow from the circumstances of their life, and some come sitting right beside you who are extremely cheerful and filled with satisfaction. So this first verse here is just reality. That's the reality that all Christians face when we come to gather together. In our midst are those that are sorrowful and those that are cheerful. And James says here, if you are suffering, then there is a place for your worship in the congregation. And there is a type of response to your suffering that is uniquely Christian. Everybody suffers in the world, but Christians respond to suffering in a uniquely worshipful way. And he says what it is here, it's praying to God. If you're coming as a Christian and you're suffering and you're coming into worship with your brothers and sisters, James says, your worshipful response is prayer, primarily. And if you're cheerful and satisfied... There's a place for you here as well. There's a place for your worship and a response if you are cheerful and satisfied in life that is uniquely Christian. The rest of the world, when they are cheerful and satisfied and everything is going well, this is the last thing they think of doing. But James says it's the first thing Christians should think of doing. Sing praises to God. So the sorrowful and the joyful have a unique praise and a unique worship that they bring to the congregation. And so there's a place in the church for you, whatever season you're in today. The sorrowful need the joyful, and the joyful need the sorrowful. And I'm just going to leave verse 13 at that and that message. And there's a lot more we can do a week on 13. But I'm going to leave that and the unpacking of the rest of what that means for us as a church, for your work in your life groups this week. And there's some amazing implications of what that one verse there just said. Like, like Paul says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And at the end of Thessalonians, he says, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. So the cheerful also weep with the suffering and they should pray in both good times and in bad. And the suffering also celebrate with the cheerful and rejoice even in their sorrow. And there's all of that that we can unpack, but that's for your life groups. Okay, so life group leaders, that's your job this week. I'm not unpacking all of that. All I want to see this morning from verse 13 right now is that James has established that there is generally a Christian response to all of the life circumstances that we face, good or bad, and that that response is addressed in the congregation in the church gathered. And James then, in the next couple of verses, is going to move on from the general and talk about a specific kind of suffering and a specific kind of response of the believer and the church. And here are those two verses again, and, and this is where we're going to camp and spend most of our time. This is the specific suffering. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, as I sort of hinted at in the introduction, these verses have caused a fair share of mischief down through the ages and across the breadth of the expression of the church in the world. The mischief is almost entirely arises because 
people pluck these verses out of context, out of the letter of James, and out of the New Testament, and out of the whole Bible, really, and by plucking them out of context, ignore all the other teaching around prayer and healing. And if you look at some traditions, like the Roman Catholics, would find their justification for the ritual of last rites in these verses. They would arrive at your deathbed and perform an anointing and prepare you for the afterlife. But that ritual doesn't seem to be what James is teaching, since the expectation set in the text here is that the person gets better. They don't die and go on. It's not just the Roman Catholics. Other people have tried to pass the anointing oil off as mainly medical. Like in the story of the Good Samaritan, where wounds of the battered man were treated with oil and wine. And so since we have modern medicine, this church response to suffering saints is no longer valid. Just send them to the hospital. We don't anoint with oil anymore. That's old. It's a physical thing, so we can get rid of it that way. Other parts of the church use it as a guarantee of miraculous healing because James speaks so categorically. And then they go on to link the physical health of a Christian to the potentially sinful condition of the Christian or the lack of healing to a lack of faith and that they are irrevocably linked the way James has expressed it here. And then others in the church have seen it as simply a practical command meant to make sure the sick get some focused attention and care. Like James is trying to trick the elders. Here, elders, I'm going to give you something to do. When somebody's really sick, you've got to go and pray over them and anoint them with oil, you know, and, and they'll get better. And so James says this very practical thing, which is very nice to make sure that sick people in the church get visited by the elders. I don't think that's what it's about. But what are we to do with it? Because it's here in Scripture. <laughs> and, and James is talking about what is the Christian response to suffering, specifically what is the church response to sickness? How do we as Christians understand this? How do we as a church especially practice this today, biblically and faithfully? Well, I won't bury the lead. I'll tell you right up front that here at Lakeside, we engage in this particular kind of healing prayer. We believe it is more than simply symbolic. It's not just a clever command to make the elders visit the really sick people. We believe the Bible speaks to our health and that God's sovereignty over our health is clearly enough explained that we can apply this instruction appropriately and in good faith. And I'll also start by saying that you will see in this whole section of text from 13 on to the end of the chapter really is that and and of all the things that we're going to talk about just remember this. Prayer is the operative action and the Lord is the actor. So whatever else is going on here, and there is a lot going on. There's the sick person and their faith. There's the elders and their faith. There's the oil and what it represents. There's the possible sin of the sick person and their forgiveness. There's lots going on in this text. But the operative action on our part is to pray. And the work that will be done is by God. So whatever else I say today, remember that is true. And that's what James is telling us. But all these other things are in the text too. The oil and the elders and faith and sin and all of this stuff. So we have to understand what James is saying here in these three short verses. And, and the question that we're really unpacking here is how do we respond or how is responding to illness with anointing prayer the normal Christian practice? 
So let's start with verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? This is the situation where this particular kind of prayer is called for by the church. And the word translated in your Bible as sick or ill, it refers to something very serious, which is evident directly in this text because the patient is not expected to rise again. They're bedridden, apparently, not expected to get up without intervention. So this is a serious sickness. James is not expecting this kind of elder intervention every time someone in the church sneezes. The, the bedridden condition, if I was to faithfully modernize it a bit, I would say that this occurs at the onset of any crippling condition, whether it's physical or mental. A sustained, life-interrupting illness or disability without any expectation of change. And if a, a Christian is experiencing that, then this is a practice that could apply to them. And because we practice this at Lakeside, I can say at this point, if you are experiencing a crippling illness and you want this kind of prayerful anointing intervention, then you should certainly call the elders. That's clearly what James tells us to do as Christians. That's our Christian response. We call the elders for this prayer. And you can do that if you're here. Let him call for the elders of the church. So I just pause here briefly to note that it's assumed that the church will have elders. Now, this is not a text about church governance and church structure, and we won't turn it into that, but it speaks to the importance of church governance and church structure. The sick person is considered to be among the church and known to the church, and the church has elders who are recognized as elders so that the person knows who it is that they're calling for this prayer. The local church governance and membership is important for a lot of reasons, but very practically here, James tells us it's needed so that the elders know who the elders are and the members know who the elders are and the elders know who the members are that they're to care for. The elders and the membership tell us who is cared for and who is doing the caring. There's a second thing we notice here. We also notice that James does not say, let him call for the person who has the gift of healing. This is not to say that God does not give the gift of healing. Obviously, God heals miraculously, or James wouldn't write this, and we wouldn't practice it. But at the time that James is writing this, and he says you have a sick person, they should call the elders. He doesn't assume that a gift of healing operates clearly and decisively through a specifically identifiable person in the local church. And I'm not arguing that it can't ever manifest that way. And this is not a text about spiritual gifts any more than it's a text about governance. But we need to realize that you cannot then use this text as an argument for spiritual gifts because James isn't talking about spiritual gifts. He never mentions the spiritual gifts. He never says, call the man or woman who has the healing gift. He says, call the elders, the boring people, the ones that will sit there and drone on and on and on about theology and things like that. So those are just two observations. It's the elders that are called. Church must therefore have elders. It's not the person with the gift of healing. It's not a text about church governance, and it's not a text about spiritual gifts. It's a text about what do the sick in the church gathered do in response to their illness, and they call the elders. What are the elders to do? Well, it seems there's three parts to this operation. Pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Prayer, anointing, and invoking or appealing to the Lord. 
So let them pray over him. Let's start there. Notice prayer, again, is the operative action on our part. And it's what I call privately communal. The group of elders, it's a plurality of elders. The church doesn't have one elder. It has a group of elders. And that group of elders represents the presence of the body of the church with that person. But this is not a healing that is done at church on the stage. It seems to be in a person's private home. They're calling the elders and the elders come together and they pray over the sick person. That seems straightforward. So here at Lakeside, again, I can say, if you call the elders, then we will come and we will pray over you exactly as we are instructed to do here. And then, of course, there is the anointing with oil. What does James intend by the anointing? Why is it used? What is oil doing? Now, it's fairly apparent as you read the context of the letter of James, at least two things are in mind here. First of all, that James has the ministry and the work of Jesus and the disciples in the Gospels in mind as he teaches. We've seen all the references similar to the Beatitudes and places where he's virtually paraphrased his half-brother, Jesus. So he has Jesus' ministry and the disciples' ministry in mind in the Gospels. We also know, because this is a letter to the 12 tribes of the Diaspora, and that he's speaking in the very early church, which is mainly Jewish, that he probably has in mind here what every Jew would know just commonly about what God means by anointing. So you've got James trying to write here saying, you guys know what Jesus taught and did, and you know what anointing is because you are good Jewish Christians. And so those two things seem fairly straightforward from the context. If we don't pluck these verses out of their context, but leave them where they are, it tells us a bit about what James is driving at. So let's look at that then. So clearly he's referring to things we see described perhaps in Mark chapter 6 and the common understanding of anointing there in the new covenant. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, so this is something the disciples did. They anointed with oil and people were healed. So James then brings that into the church. And the word we want to key in on here in Mark and in James, though, of course, is anointed. This isn't treatment with oil, the way we have described in the Good Samaritan story in Luke chapter 10, where it says he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, it's true, and it sometimes maybe adds a little bit of confusion to this text, that oil was used medicinally. So people look at this and they say, oh, this is a practical thing. The, you know, the elders should come and, I don't know, what, rub oil on the person and it'll heal them or something because it has a medicinal property. But when we come, we are not rubbing you with oil, okay? We will anoint you with oil, but there will be no oil treatment when we come. We don't want to go down that path here at Lakeside. But this is long before antibiotics. It's long before we even understood what infection was. But the people knew that if you treated wounds with alcohol and with oil, they recovered better. They didn't know why necessarily. They just knew that it worked. It wasn't until hundreds of years later that we found out what infection was. But this is not a treatment. It's not medicinal. The Bible does tell us often and frequently what anointing with oil does mean. And it's not merely ritual. It's not magical, it's not medical, but anointing with oil is spiritual. 
To anoint something or to anoint someone with oil means to set it apart and to consecrate it for God. And here we begin to see what is going on with this prayer and this anointing. And I'll go to the key verse that explains anointing, but there are literally dozens and dozens of them. But here's where God kind of lays it out in Exodus 30. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil, and with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils, and it actually goes on and lists a whole bunch of other things. And then he says at the end, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve as my priests. That's the essential text to understanding anointing. And from Exodus forward, we see through the Old Testament repeated many times with priests and with kings and with objects that are set apart for God. Anointing is the means by which we spiritually declare this is God's. It doesn't belong to us, but it belongs to God. Even people anointed with oil as a king or a priest, the person was declaring, I don't belong to myself. I belong to God and his purposes. I am working on behalf of God. It is God who has claim over my life. Just as he has claim over the altar and the lampstand and the utensils and the temple, he has claim over his priests and his kings. And I think the practical purpose of the anointing in this case is to set the boundaries around the prayer that the elders are offering. And this is what I mean very practically. You cannot be anointing someone to set them apart for the purposes of God while simultaneously praying for your own purposes and your own will to be done. And so by this practice of anointing, the elders are having to declare, we are setting this sick person apart and consecrating them for your purposes, God, not our purposes. They are your child. They are under your will. They will accomplish your purposes. We're not here praying for our purposes. We're praying for your purposes because we are declaring that this crippled, sick person is yours. And they're declaring the same thing. So I think the anointing is important and it's unique to this kind of prayer because it really forces us to pray in a very specific way. And to understand the sovereignty of God in what is taking place. We don't anoint with oil or are instructed to anoint with oil in any other kind of prayer or worship that we do in the New Testament, except here. So it's important. And I think a big part of what it's doing is it's giving boundaries and explaining what is going on in this prayer. So you call the elders, we will pray, and we will anoint you with oil with all of that theological and spiritual context underpinning our understanding of what we're praying for and who we're praying to and who we're praying over. And in that sense, the oil of anointing in healing is similar to the water of baptism. It is, yes, symbolic, but it is a spiritual anointing. It is a spiritual baptism. And just as we baptize with water, we anoint with oil. And the waters of baptism signify what is going on theologically and spiritually between us and God. The oil is symbolizing what is going on spiritually and theologically between us and God in healing. So with James having established the context of the prayer and the anointing, his conclusion then becomes obvious. James says... That obviously it's all done in the name of the Lord. 
Chris Weir preached a great word on this just a few weeks ago. So if you want to dive deeper into what it means to pray in the name of the Lord and call on the name of Jesus, you can go back to that message. I'll simply say here, to invoke the name of the Lord means to make an appeal to God based on his authority and on who he is. The power of healing here is not in the elders. The power is not in the prayer. It's not in the anointing oil. It's not in the sick person. The power of healing is in the Lord. So if you ask for this kind of prayer, whatever works, whatever works come out of this in your life following this prayer, it's not the credit of the elders, it's not the credit of the prayer, it's not the credit of their faith, it's not the credit of anything except the name of the Lord and his authority. Any work that comes out of this experience in your life is 100% the work of God. And this is what we practice at Lakeside. Just as James has described it in this verse. And we're confident that if we practice it in this way, with this underpinning of the wider context of the scripture and not pluck it out, then we're confident our practice is biblical and faithful in how we do it. Now that's the practice. James divides it up neatly here. Well, he didn't, write, he didn't put the verse numbers in. Somebody did later on, but they're conveniently divided for us. The first verse that we just talked about there is the practice. Now, the next verse, James gets, in his typical fashion, he utters a very unequivocal and categorical statement, which throws us into another tizzy of debate, because now he says this is the result of that practice. You know, as I was preparing this, and as I'm preaching through it, it feels like jumping out of the frying pan right into the fire, and then jumping out of the fire into the kitchen, only to realize that the kitchen is on fire. So there's no way you get to the end of this without having to go through some really difficult and really challenging, you know, understanding of the text and what it means. So here's the result. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this is mischief part two, and we have to ask, is this a guarantee that healing is always a result of this prayer if it's properly administered. And the corollary, it's a big word, the high school students know what it means. The corollary is, does it mean that an absence of healing must therefore reveal that either the elders lack faith or the patient is harboring sin and that their illness is a result of their sinful condition? And people have held extreme versions of these two views, I think, to the point of distorting the truth and causing a great deal of harm in the body of Christ. And the mischief occurs, again, as I said, because we pluck these verses out of their context and try to apply them unilaterally without any other teaching from Jesus or the New Testament or the Old. If we take verse 15 out of context of the rest of the Bible, then we won't understand it any more than we can take the previous verse 14 out of the context of the Bible and understand it. I mean, we just saw in verse 14 that we needed to know about the elders. We had to understand prayer and faith and anointing and the agency and supremacy of Christ, or else verse 14 wouldn't make any sense to us. And verse 15 is no different. Verse 15 requires that we have knowledge of the context of the whole counsel of Scripture, or it won't make sense. And if you take either 14 or 15 or 14 and 15 out together without any biblical context, then you can get them really wrong. So what's the context for this verse? The most immediate context, obviously, is the anointing that we just talked about. 
The prayer of faith will. What's the prayer of faith? James just described it. The prayer of faith is the elders praying in faith with anointing at the request of the person under the understanding of what anointing is and within the bounds of that and the sovereignty of God and in the name of Jesus. That's the prayer of faith. And faith is important for sure. The prayer of faith takes place in the boundaries of all of that. Verse 14. No other prayer in the New Testament is constrained in this way. But in the prayer of healing, physically and symbolically and spiritually, we declare that we are not our own and we're not praying for our purposes but for God's. The anointing of oil is the thy will be done made physically manifest. But James adds to that the absolute necessity of our faith. If we go back to Mark's gospel and we see the examples of many of Jesus' healings, we see that they are absolutely framed around faith. With reference to the paralyzed man who was lowered by his friends through the roof, Jesus says to him, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And he picked up his bed and he walked. And to the woman who simply reached out and touched his robe in the crowd, Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Uh, The Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, in Mark 10, Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received, recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And so in verse 14, James is affirming that if any prayer is going to heal, then it must be a prayer with faith. I think it's easy to see that that's what James is saying. Or if you say it in the opposite way, it becomes even more clear. What is absolutely true is that the prayer of doubt will not accomplish any healing. I mean, you may get healed by some other means, but it wasn't the prayer of doubt that healed you. It is only the prayer of faith that is effectual in its working. And so faith is of importance. We pray, as we pray with the anointing, this prayer of faith, we pray with absolute trust in the sovereignty of God and his ability to heal and to work his will in the purpose of the person we're praying over. But does it follow that prayer always heals, even if faith and anointing is present? And this is where we can be both encouraged and discouraged. This is where we can, with our words or our attitudes, really affect the hearts and the faith of people who are struggling with crippling illness. And where if we, if we are struggling with crippling illness, can be affected. And so we want to make sure that we are careful as we read this in context to understand what the whole counsel of Scripture says. And we could go to a number of places, but I knew I'd be running out of time by now. So let's go right to the gold standard example of the Apostle Paul's personal experience in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Apostle Paul is afflicted with what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And he says it was sent even as a messenger from Satan. So he's pretty sure there's a spiritual battle going on. But it's a physical illness. And he prays three times for it to be removed. It's possibly the effects of malaria or some other illness he was recovering from. We see that he stays in Galatia because he was sick. So he stayed in Galatia for a long time because he couldn't get over this illness. Could be his poor eyesight. Whatever it was, Paul prayed for healing. And God doesn't tell him that he lacks faith. God tells Paul, I'm not healing you, and that sickness is staying with you for my purposes. I'll even tell you what my purposes are. It's to show you that my power is made perfect in your weakness. So God says, not about your faith, Paul. I don't think any of us doubt Paul's faith. But he prayed three times to be healed. And God said, I have another purpose for you. 
Because why? Because Paul isn't his own. No Christian are our own. We are God's, consecrated to his purpose. And we need to be especially reminded of that when we are facing crippling illness in ourselves or in those around us, other Christians that we know. It's easy to believe that we are in God's will and are serving his purposes when he has us on a beach in Hawaii, Steve and Beth Archibald. Um, That was a low blow. That was a low blow. But when things are good, when we are the cheerful in the assembly, when we are the cheerful in the assembly, then it's easy to think, yeah, this is God's purpose in my life. But when we are the sorrowful in the assembly, we think this can't be God's purpose. I'm consecrated to God. Something should be different. God says to Paul, no, you are consecrated to me, and I do have a purpose in you. And I'm not saying you lack faith, but I'm not healing you. So we look to that context, and we have to understand that that's a reality that James is speaking into here. And we could go to other less dramatic examples. As I mentioned, Paul stayed in Galatia. You see that in Galatians 4.13. He got a, they got an extended exposure to his preaching because of his illness there. Probably malaria, something like that. Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach problems. Surely Timothy had enough faith to deal with indigestion. But Paul says, hey, I know, I know you're struggling. Take a little wine. Help your stomach. Epaphroditus was a companion of Paul. He was sick and almost died, we're told in Philippians 1. The the Christian experience of health and illness is very much the normal experience of life in fallen creation. The sorrowful and the cheerful on any given Sunday come into the church because the Christians are not exempt from illness and from sorrow. We just respond differently. We respond with prayer and with praise and with this anointing healing when the sickness becomes crippling and discouraging. James says this is how we respond as a church. But the normal Christian experience of life is a fallen creation. Romans 8, to 23 sums it up the best for me, for many of us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So Paul's talking about Christians. We Christians who have the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul's talking about. We groan waiting for the redemption because this is not the body that God has in store for us. And we need to be careful that we draw too close a conclusion between sin and a fallen creation and our bodies and suffering and the purposes of God or our faith or our lack of it or a presence of sin. It doesn't mean it, that it isn't a lack of faith. It doesn't mean that there isn't a presence of sin, but there is no direct correlation. Well, that's the faith part. Let's move on and talk about the sin part. If the problem isn't a lack of faith like Paul or Timothy, doesn't James imply that the problem is sin then? It would seem like Romans gives us a little bit of a hint. But James says, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice that James rightly says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. But it was a common Jewish understanding that if someone was grievously ill or crippled, they must have sinned. And that could be the case. Expanding on our context again, we see in the Psalms of David that the the guilt of sin manifested in David in physical pain and illness. 
My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. And it goes on. His back is filled with pain. There's no health in my body. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan in anguish. So David's sin manifested physically. And it's interesting that, you know, there are completely secular doctors and psychologists who will tell you this happens. (laughs) You're wrestling with guilt. You're wrestling with remorse. You're wrestling with resentment and unforgiveness. Yeah, it's sleepless nights. It's unhealthy eating. It's bile coming up in your throat. Our sin can affect us physically as well as spiritually. We fast forward to the New Testament and Paul says to the church in Corinth who are taking communion improperly. He says very boldly to them, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, body of Christ and the body of the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. Because you have not been living righteously before God. And even Jesus often admonished the sick that he healed. Remember, he would heal them. And what did he almost always say afterwards? Go and sin no more. Almost as if, like, okay, I've made you better. Now go and don't sin anymore so that you don't get sick again. (laughs) Because they're connected. So is there a spiritual connection that we believe in? Absolutely, there is a spiritual connection. But is it always present? John 9, 1-3 records a story so clearly on this point and so precise that it's almost impossible to imagine that it's not, well, we know it's intentionally meant to clarify this exact question that might arise in the church. Like picture this, the disciples and Jesus are walking along a road as they've been doing for days and days and days and days in their ministry. Week upon week, month upon month, they've been walking the dusty roads of Israel And they pass by a blind man. They've walked by hundreds of blind beggars beside the road. But this one time, as they're walking, the disciples suddenly perk up and ask in John 9, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, glad you asked that question about the connection between sin and illness. So just waiting for you to ask that question so I could get it, and then John will write it down later. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus says, it's not that simple. You can't just look at a sick person and say, oh, they sinned. They're obviously leading an unrighteous life, or they wouldn't be blind, or they wouldn't be crippled, or they wouldn't get cancer, or they wouldn't get whatever. And this is where much mischief has been done, because unfortunately, I think... I will trust well-meaning Christians in various streams of evangelicalism in the church down through history have made those kinds of statements. That if you would just confess your sin, your cancer will be healed. Jesus doesn't even say that. So don't anyone here dare say that. I will come to your house and I will anoint you. (laughs) But not with oil. No, seriously, don't say that. Jesus can't even say that. We don't know the purposes of God. That's the point of the anointing. 
to say this person is consecrated to God and God's purposes, and we don't know. So James rightly says here, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And we're on the home stretch. We're landing the plane. There may be a sinful cause to our illness, and we should search those out in our own lives. That is for the person who is being prayed over to search out, not for us. Whether practical or spiritual, you should be searching your heart for that. Because sin can affect your life, practically and spiritually. If you're an alcoholic, there will be physical manifestations of your sin, primarily in your liver. If you're an adulterer in mind or body, like David, there may be physical repercussions from guilt and anxiety and doubt and grief over your sin, even if it isn't physical. Sometimes God uses our sickness as a means of grace towards us, as it was with David, so that David would repent and be righteous and right standing before God again. And if sin draws us to the very brink of an eternity apart from God on our deathbed, as James describes here, then sins that we have tolerated or worse, sins that we have cultivated bring us to that state of physical despair. Sickness may be the means that God applies to draw us into repentance and into forgiveness. So don't discount that any more than assume it. And therefore, James signals his kind of mini conclusion. Therefore, he says, this is the normal pattern of Christian living in the face of illness. This is how I've given you the specifics of what the elders do to a person who is afflicted. But let me tell you, church, in the very next verse, verse 16, here's how you should just generally then live if you want to avoid this. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. It's like James is saying, don't wait until you need the elders to come to your sick bed and anoint you with oil. Don't wait for the extreme intervention. Avoid the elders and get in the habit of confessing when you sin against each other. And get in the habit of praying for each other and over each other all the time. So that healing would always be presenting itself in the life of the church and in your life. Make healing prayer just part of your everyday life. And you may never have to call the elders for this. A prayer a day keeps the elders away. The power... James finishes here, the power of people who are right with God, praying for each other, is powerful in its effect. That's the takeaway. But all of this, just to say, as we have unpacked all of this in the context of Scripture and in what James is saying and what Jesus has taught us and what we understand about healing and forgiveness in the body of Christ... It's all just to say that this is our normal Christian practice here at Lakeside. When you read this, you can say, this is what Lakeside does. This is what James tells us faithful Christians do. We face the same experiences of the world that everybody else faces, but we respond to it in a uniquely Christian way. In our praise and in our worship and as a church body gathered together and as elders with members in the church, we have an answer to the suffering and the sickness that we face. And whatever happens, it will be because we are consecrated and set apart for the purpose of God. And we absolutely trust with absolute faith that God's will will be done in our sickness. Whether it is to bring us to repentance, whether it is to make himself shown strong in our weakness, whether it is to draw others into the family of God and to uh, a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't know how he's going to use our sickness. But this is how we consecrate ourselves That it would never be wasted. And trust me, God will never waste anything that he brings into your life. He will use it for his glory. 
So what James describes here is a tangible means of grace that God offers through the church. It's one of the benefits of being adopted into God's family, of being part of a local body of Christ, of of being under elders and among other brothers and sisters, of being a living stone in his temple. You don't have to pretend to be happy all the time. The sorrowful are welcome and have their unique means of worship in the gathering. You don't have to pretend to have it together all the time or to be perfectly a sanctified Christian who's squeaky clean and just waiting for heaven. You can bring your sorrow into the church, James says, and there's a place for you. And if you are suffering, if you are sinning, there's a place for you to be healed, to be cleansed. If you are crippled, if you are facing the unique suffering of illness, not only your elders, but your whole church will strive to bring you into the care of the Lord. And this is what we practice at Lakeside. So if any of you are in any doubt about that, you can call the elders and we will come and we will pray over you and we will anoint you with oil and we will consecrate you to the will of the Lord and to his purposes. And your brothers and sisters that are sitting right here around you will pray for you and cover you in prayer and listen to your confession and forgive you if it's a confession of a sin against them. And we will practice healing prayer in all its forms at Lakeside. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for James. This has been like tricky to unpack. And I just trust that the Holy Spirit will take anything I said in error and everybody will forget it. And anything that needed to be said in truth, you have already replaced in their minds and their hearts with truth. But Father, we want to be biblical and faithful in practicing healing prayer. And this is what your word has told us. And so this is what we will do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.